So he would talk about prisoners who um, were convinced that they were going to be released by Christmas or convinced that the war was going to be over or whatever. And then when the Christmas came and went and they weren't released, they suddenly died, right? Because they'd given yeah. all that hope to that release date. And when, and they, they you know, or they had a dream and, and they were going to be free of this camp by by Christmas or something. And then it would come true because they would be free of the camp and they would die is what he would say. You know, it was finding meaning in the suffering in the moment and also finding purpose in that moment. Welcome to the Mindful Paths podcast with Nick Bay and Harry Kalimnios, where we explore the fascinating world of mindset, mindfulness, fitness, well-being, vitality, leadership, and of course, personal development. Our goal is to provide you with insights to help you live a more fulfilling, happier and healthier life. So if you're striving to be a better parent, friend, leader, colleague or boss, or if you simply want to be more mindful and aware of the world around you, then this Mindful Past podcast is going to be for you. We invite you to eavesdrop on our conversations and we challenge you to discover a new insight to help you on your own journey towards personal growth and positive change. So sit back, relax and let's begin our journey together on the Mindful Past podcast. Harry. Good to see you. I've come armed today with a particular book that you yeah. recommended and a guest yeah. who listened has sent me cover. a very kind copy. Yeah, and I've now read it. It's earmarked, which probably for those that love a book uh, will hate to see. It's covered in earmarks and, and, and highlighters and pens and quotes and everything else. Uh, but today, I should probably give some context. I'm going to ask how you are in a moment. But today, we're going to be talking about the Victor E. Frankel book, Man's Search for Meaning, the classic mm. tribute to hope from the Holocaust. Over 16 million copies sold. And it links yeah. to a lot of the stuff we talk about in terms of uh, mindful past and, and, and what meaning. And as you often say, nothing means anything apart from the meaning you give it. So um, we're going to jump into that today. But before we do, how you been? Yeah, I've been good, actually. Um, the, well, the last couple of days, although I'll tell you what's weird. Um, I think the last three weeks, I think I've had some sort of weird virus of some sort that i'm not aware of i'm not aware of it as i go about my day to day but my ring scores uh for today is the first time in three weeks that i've got over 80 in my readiness score my aura the others have been really low and my hrv is low and my heart rate is high and, and this is without it's like sometimes finishing dinner at three in the afternoon which normally would bring it down to the low 40s and it's in the 50s so I think I've had some sort of weird virus uh, the last couple of days because I uh, last few. You, you weren't feeling that great last week, no, though. Yeah, yeah, it's no, of course a seasonal well, change. I know that. Um, yeah. It, suddenly, this impacted me. My scores have been low as well, but I, I've suddenly had a really like uh, um, those that know me will laugh when I say this because I'll say I had it before this, but uh, a really low tolerance to alcohol recently. Like I had two glasses of wine and felt like I was off my trolley the other day. Yeah. And, uh, a couple of yesterday um, and woke up this morning with what felt like a raging hangover from two glasses of wine. So that's having an impact yeah. on me that's slightly different. No, I've I, also made an intolerance to white fish from absolutely nowhere as well. So it's middle age. White yeah, fish. I mean, that's it. My, my gut is normally really amazing. And then and then recently it's felt like just inflamed for some reason. So I think I've had some weird stomach bug. But today was the first day and it was scores were 88. And um, and I felt good. And I think I was in bed by 10.30 last night, which is always good. Uh, so I think whatever's happened is on men. But also, and it might play into what we're going to talk about today. Um, because I think I've got had a few things on my mind. And I think last week, um, I had half term and I had this. Um, so I wasn't doing anything in the schools. And I had this week where I thought, right, I'm going to make some traction with some of the projects that I really want to get done. And I felt like the week just 
didn't happen for me in the way that I wanted. And I was thinking about this and it ties into what we're talking about with man's search for meaning because I I felt like last week I I didn't have a purpose. Like I had the purpose in terms of, oh, I, I've got these projects I want to do, but they're not, they're, they're me putting my own deadline on. But you know, when, when you're yeah. working for other people, you, you've got other responsibilities. They tend to say like, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, right? Because you tend to be just way more efficient. And when you've got all the space, you know, I was finding it harder to wake up. I was finding it, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, I've got this week, I, I need to recover. And also my scores were off. So I was like, okay, let me just focus on the recovery. But then I wasn't sure if my scores were off just because I was, there's some underlying stress about not getting some of these things sorted. And I was thinking about this as uh, when you said last week, oh, let's talk about man's search for meaning, which as we'll talk about in a second, it is about purpose, is about having uh, kind of some sort of future vision. And I was thinking, I wonder if it's because there was like not a purpose to the week. And I find that a little bit with my my dad, right? So he's now retired 15 years, um, but he he doesn't get up to like 11, 12 now and, he go, and he's always asleep. He hasn't got a purpose, right? to be frank like obviously yeah he's got his uh is it five nieces now uh, five grandchildren um uh, and everything but you know he's his two sisters died last year uh, the husband of one of the sisters died two, uh, last week or two weeks ago the, the, the funeral was then you know he's he celebrated his 80th earlier uh, a couple of months ago but um i this whole idea of purpose i think it's so important so i think it's really appropriate that we talk about this i the meaning agree and actually i'm going to link into that then with a with a quote to, to, which i'll mention in just a minute to, to kick off what this book is all about and um, before i do so i've been i've had a five hours in the car today got up first thing this morning rushed back to see my dad in salisbury he's been feeling pretty obviously for those that listen regularly will know he's, he's fighting terminal cancer and uh, hasn't been feeling so great and i wanted to get down and see him pick him up a bit give him a bit of a I don't know, a bit of a boost, a moral boost, and and, yeah. and let him know we're thinking of him and supporting him. And then back in the car, I was only there for three hours. It was two and a bit hours away. Got back here and then straight into work. Um, but it's interesting. So the book, I'll, I'll link the two in, in a moment, but and, and your story as well, with a fantastic quote that I just think really sits well with what you've just mentioned. The book itself, for those that have no understanding or, or reference to what it's about um, beyond the title, is uh, Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who, for all intents and purposes lost everything i think most people would would, would suggest including his family and it, 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 in holocaust and in the concentration camps and he survived it and it's very much about his survival and how he found meaning in the survival but then and, and i think the other thing to mention here is it's not a feel-good book there's a lot of self-help books out there that are that's not what this book's about it definitely dives into the darker side of of life and darker side of what humans can do to other humans and of humanity and of the things that we have to do. Um, but there's light in the book and that links to what you've just mentioned with uh, your dad and actually with my dad as well. And that, the, the quote I was going to mention here is he's, uh, Frankl says in the book, so to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. Mm -hmm. And you and I talk a lot about meaning and the idea that and this is what the book's about, Man's Search for Meaning, the idea that no one can take away everything from us, no matter what the situation is, no matter what the external circumstances are. The one thing that I, I think the book is trying to say is we always have the choice to choose how we feel in that moment. To, to We have the choice to provide meaning to any circumstance 
any situation and no one can change that for us. And you might think, well, you know, what meaning can I be give if you're going to be going in front of a, I don't know, a firing squad or you know, something really, really bad happens? Well, that's still your choice. You know, whether the, you're, you're giving your life up for a greater good could be the meaning that you find, but the meaning you give it changes the way that we feel about that situation. Um, and it links to things that we've talked about in every single episode so far, how thoughts impact the way that we feel, that we shouldn't be quick to judge uh, because we don't know what that other individuals are going through, that um, just because we think something and feel something doesn't make it right, because if we change the way we, we, we reframe that thought, we can feel completely different in a moment. Um, and there's loads to take away from this book. There's loads to take away from it. Well, and it's talking about that powerful. that you just, because um, I, I, I read this book maybe 12 years ago. I think I've read it once since then. And then I started listening to the audio version a couple of days ago. Uh, I haven't got all the way through it again, but I remember one of the bits, he was talking to someone in the camp and he was another prisoner who had lost his wife or something. And uh, or was... Uh, yeah wasn't yeah I think he lost his wife right his wife had died and he he was having all this heartache and stuff and he was saying oh you know it should have been me to go first and she could have lived and stuff and then I think Victor Frankl was saying well you know you're suffering a lot right now right you know you're like yeah I'm suffering loads but but by her going if you'd gone first then she would have been the one with all this suffering feeling what you're feeling now now. Absolutely yeah, you're right. not now kind of saving her from that feeling and and it's about that reframe and it's and I mean, the whole premise of the book really is that, you know, with that suffering, you know, if there's a meaning to that suffering, if there's a meaning to that. And now, now I was thinking about this the other day, because when it comes to Buddhism, we talk about how suffering is is maybe optional. And actually, like pain is pain is a given, but suffering is optional. And I think they're kind of sort of saying the same thing. It's really like if you if you decide that there's you know, reason behind the pain or the situation you're going through, and there's a there's a purpose to it or a greater good or whatever, then you can you can bear that. And I think he says, you know, yeah. uh, um, he quotes Nietzsche or something where he says uh, a person who uh, has a, enough why can bear anyhow or something like that. Tolerate anyhow, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I think like yeah, we 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 talk about reframing a lot. We talk about nothing has any meaning except the meaning we give it. And I do feel like that gets lost on people where it's like linguistic gymnastics. And yeah, I- it's a concept though, isn't it? It's something that it's not just a quote. It's something you have to, you have to let in, you have to let yeah. it embed and you have to let it awaken the senses inside. It's, it's a really powerful concept. Yeah. Um, there's going to be a few quotes I was going to mention today, which I've, which I've highlighted from going back through my notes, because obviously it's relevant. We're talking about the book. Um, but Frankel says the last human freedom is the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. And and that and that's it. It's it's that's the freedom that we do have internal. And, and I think the idea being that no matter what happens to you, no matter what you're going through, and people will be listening to this going through all kinds of small T trauma, big T trauma, incidents, times, you know, li- life is a challenge. That's what makes it's what makes life exciting, right? If everything was always good, we wouldn't understand what good looks like because we've never experienced the bad. You need the yin and need the yang. But no matter what happens to you, you can always choose your your attitude towards it. You can choose your meaning of what that means. You can choose your response to it. And I know you've talked a couple of times about the road rage incident you had and your response could have been two different things. And we think that's all the time. We How often we we make a, we, we respond too quickly. Yeah. Ah, you know, I could yeah. have responded differently on reflection. Um, but you can always control your response 
to what happens and how you feel about how you responded. And feel that's something feel. we always have control of. Well, you think you do, but most people, like, he talk, I think it's, is it in Victor Frankl's book as well? It talks about stimulus and response. I think it's Yes, that. he does, yeah. Yeah, yeah so stimulus and response, that between the stimulus and the response, there's a gap. And it's in that gap that we have the ability to make that choice. Now, the challenge is that most people, the stimulus and the response happens immediately in that, you know, you hit your foot against the table. Uh, actually, this happened to me yesterday. It wasn't I hit my foot. I was at my friend's house and he's got one of these, you know, these cookers, not uh, not cookers, cooker, you know, it's instant hot water. You know, okay, you, yeah, okay. Right. No. You can like turn the tap and you get instant yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I hadn't used this thing for a while. So I was doing it and trying to fill up my cup. And then basically, long story short, I managed to burn my hand, right? Burn, burn my thing. Now, my instinct is normally to go, you know, like, you know, scream up. But as I know, and, I, and because I've trained with this, I, I noticed the pain. But then I, you know, take a step back and I like kind of breathe through it or I kind of like do it a bit more rationally. Now, most people, that stimulus and that response happens straight away, right? They, a bit of someone spills a hot coffee on you, you've got to like do something, right? Whereas when you train yourself, and we've talked about this before, I think like, you know, with meditation, mindfulness, things like that, you can notice there's a gap, even though it's only a fraction of a second. And as you train yourself with more meditation techniques and so on, you can lengthen that gap so that you can respond rather than react in a moment. Um, and I think that's a really... Uh, it, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you've said, but I think um, the importance for me, from what I take away from from the book, is it doesn't matter if you react instantly, and that's and it's not necessarily the, the reaction that you're proud of. We can do things, and we can end up feeling like we're totally fucked, total my language, totally stuffed, right? We're totally powerless, and often we can become apathetic at that point. Uh, what's the point anyway? Nothing we can do. This has happened to me. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. We become, you know, become victim of the victim mentality. And, that, and that's natural, by the way. I'm not saying anyone shouldn't feel that way or anything like that, but it, it's a natural response. But it's often on the awareness of that response, the reflection of that response, that you realize that not everything we first thought is true. It's true because that's how we were thinking about it in that moment. But actually, we always have the power to choose how we respond to what's happening to us. And I can continue to think in an apathet apathetic mood that, I'm totally fucked or I can I have the power to change that meaning at any point you I that think that's the bit that's important a bit like the the example you gave with the wife and the a really powerful example in the book with the wife and the, who, who who dies and the guys can't deal with the suffering that doesn't take away his instant response of suffering but he was he was able to reframe that suffering later when he was able to change the way that he interpreted this you know what it was all the meaning but of that I, suffering I mean, you're coming to it from a certain um cognitive awareness right like where you say you know we have the power to choose that and we do right yeah my experience with most people is then they're not aware of that right and so that they don't feel like they've got a choice in how they respond sure no i accept that it, that's it what is. this that's what we're hoping to do today though right is, exactly. is bring exactly. some of his I mean, workings to I, 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 the reason i highlight that i'm sorry i will let you go back i just want to try and get the distinction is not everyone's going to be able to extend that gap though from listening to this podcast without no. a lot of work and it and i don't want people to, to to come away thinking that it's the instant response that's important for me it's the cognitive response that and choice that is the real value in this book response. yeah afterwards yeah. yeah i mean yeah because i mean at the end of the day and i have them um, 
I don't know whether it was with you years ago we had this conversation or not. Um, I think it was slightly different, actually, the conversation we were having, it was, uh, which we won't get to. I think it was about one of your friends who you were hoping to change things. And I, But I was saying we can't make anyone feel a certain way. So like when someone says, oh, you know, that Nick, he made me so mad. Nick didn't make you mad. No. Nick did something. You chose to respond and your body chose to respond in a certain way to generate madness within you. And and therefore you so you're putting the blame, I mean, you're putting the responsibility onto Nick to to actually influence how you feel. And of course, other people's actions do influence how we feel, uh, but we're the one generating those feelings. And it's a really hard thing for sometimes for when I have this discussion with certain family members. And I guess I can be a bit pedantic with it when if they say, you know, oh, you make me like this. I'm like, I don't make you anything like, you know, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. you. Uh, obviously, that's not always the right moment to be um, uh, coming up with these ideas and these uh, these theories for well, them. But, you know, it's really interesting. There's a there's, there's a toll based. Uh, so I've used this with my kids. and I, I, I may have mentioned it on the show before. I think this I mean, everyone knows I love my parables. Right. And this links to a parable about a, a great swordsman. It's quite a long story. So I'll cut the uh, cut straight to the punchline of the story, essentially. But if we picture this now of a group of bullies in the school playground, and I'm, I'm obviously butchering a parable and trying to make it current. OK, uh, so bear with me. There's, a, there's, a, there's I don't know. Let's say there's three bullies in this particular example. There's the bully who's insulting a child and says they are this that and the other right you have one person that maybe the bully's friend that laughs at that thing that's their interpretation of the words being said there's the person that receives the feedback who is being bullied um who maybe feels terrible by those words and maybe the and the bully as well who feels something else so that those the words are the same for three but they're directed to different individuals and the feelings that they impart on those individuals change but the um and it obviously that all depends on how you receive that information. So as you were saying, they can't make them feel anything. It's how they're inter- yeah, yeah. they interpret it. Now, this links to a parable about a great swordsman who used to win, win loads and loads of battles. So he had a battle with a Zen master. And the way he used to win the battles was he would, and I think I've said it on the show before, one of the early episodes, he would insult them and insult them and insult them until he found a weakness. And they would eventually, they would get so insulted, they'd react. They would, the, the masters would lose their calm and then he would find their you know, their, their uh, Achilles heel and, and kill them by because they he'd managed to rile them so much. But the idea of the story when you're dealing with bullies and to put it in the context of children in the playground, and I said this to my, my kids, if I'm saying, if so, a bully says something to you, uh, sorry, if a bully wants to give you a gift and you choose not to receive it, who does that gift belong to? Well, it belongs to the bully because I haven't accepted it. In the same context, if a bully gives you an insult and you choose not to accept it, who does that insult belong to? And it belongs with the bully. So I'm using that as an example because, as you've mentioned, in, very, in, in, in simple terms, if I say you are X, Y, and Z, I can choose to accept that and feel bad for it because I'm interpreting it that way. And therefore, I must be because they said it. And these are all things internally. In the same instance, I could just decide not to accept that insult. And I can have the interpretation that it's therefore lives with the bully, whether it does or not, that's up to the bully yeah. to receive it. But it's a totally different feeling. And yeah. yet the words haven't changed. It's the way that we receive that information and how we choose to feel about it in that moment. Uh, but I, I highlight that because for those that listen to this have got kids, I think it's a really powerful way to deal with a bullying comment because um, they can understand it. 
Not even just useful for kids. I mean, I'm finding uh, now I've actually been off um, things like Twitter for like maybe or X or whatever we're supposed to call it now for about three months or so, which is great. And um, but I am still acutely aware of. I guess this, the, the word I hate actually is triggering, right? There's a, there's this word triggering, right? People get triggered by certain things. Yeah. I often have to tread carefully with, I, I, you know, the students that I do um, speeches with because, you know, they have 30 different people, they're 30 different speeches. I, I kind of know what the speech is going to be about if I have time to go around to all 30 students beforehand so we can kind of, uh, think about how we frame it because there's been a lot for example uh, it's not so much this year last year there was a lot of I guess um, tiptoeing around the Andrew Tate topic I don't know if it's okay that's familiar to you it might not be a name that's familiar to you Andrew yeah no no Andrew Tate yeah there's a documentary on it recently on, on okay yeah and so I mean I, I'm quite versed in it like I've, I've not just watched the highlights I've watched maybe like 10 hours of interviews across different platforms and that because i feel like when i come into that conversation especially with the boys um that it's useful to have all that background but i know some of the female trainers they feel quite intimidated especially when sometimes the boys tend to do um this symbol which is like the fingers and the triangle type thing and and again nothing means anything except the meaning you give it so if the female trainers are taking oh these guys are all misogynistic blah 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 right they're going to feel threatened um but i I don't want to use andrew tate as an example but i'm just saying that there are conversations and specifically right now we're having um kind of a tiptoey time around the whole uh, israel palestine issue because we get a lot sure Uh, we don't get a lot but i get a couple of speeches about that every now and then and it's and it's interesting because there's certain words and i've been looking you know there were some certain words being chanted at uh protests you know pro-palestine protests and i heard an israeli minister um talking about how these words should be outlawed and they they are meaning that we are trying to call for the destruction of israel that's her meaning of that i'm I'm not in that camp so i have no 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 um definition for those those Mm -hmm. words the other but it's about how you tread that line is quite interesting because I feel like that line is becoming narrower and narrower and it's easier and easier to fall foul of it because people say, well, that's triggering me or that's, that's offending me or that's, and it's like, well, where does the personal responsibility lie for that person to say, in a, in a way, you know, just. Uh, we, guess, we live in a blame culture though now. Yeah, exactly. And you're always yeah. going to offend someone, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously you want to, and I always say, you know, you, you, you've got to, speak about things in a way that you try and involve the whole audience so they don't alienate people. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be like 20% of people that are going to love you no matter what you do, 20% that hate you no matter what you do, and you're a fight for the rest in the middle. Um, So I I guess it's that I feel like we're living in a bit more of a culture where there is that blame, there is that uh, victimhood, there is that... um, Yeah, victim uh, mentality. Yeah. It it is there. Um, But if we change... If we change that meaning, it can be really powerful. I mean, something that comes exactly. into the book and, and something that you are a massive advocate for, and rightly so, I'm certainly becoming more of and more of one the more I follow the path of, of a very simple path of being grateful, right? And uh, I go back to the Simon On quote, it's impossible to be grateful and unhappy at the same time. But you can take it further. And I think Viktor Frankl does that in the book to link it back. He's like, no matter what you go for, you got to, the meaning is where can you find an area that you can be grateful for within the suffering. 
So, you know, if you link it back to you doing a, you know, a public, for some people, public speaking in front of a big group of people would be terrifying yeah. and they would be suffering and they would be feeling anxious and feeling all of these things. Frustration that they've been asked, maybe. But just by putting the words, I'm grateful before, whatever that is you're feeling, can change the whole context of the situation. So it could be, I'm grateful for the frustration that I feel about doing this because it's going to allow me to grow. Uh, because it's going to force me to do something I'm really uncomfortable doing. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be pushed in a direction I don't like to be pushed. I'm, yeah. you know, and that, there's obviously a million different examples. Uh, yeah, I got I got some specific feedback yesterday uh, along those lines. So they they have a free form section at the end of the feedback that they can write what the most important yeah. workshop was. And a few of them, um, because I talk a lot about pushing yourself out of comfort zone, first attempt in learning, FAIL, fail, all these sorts of things. And they were like, yeah, uh, a grateful, like I was pushed out my comfort zone. It helped me grow or something like that, you know? <laughs> so, exactly. So. But if you'd asked them pre-session, pre how do you how are you going to feel? We are going to push out your comfort zone. They may feel anxious. They may feel frustrated. They may feel worried. And in reality, we can feel those things. But just by adding the two words, I'm grateful for, and thinking about why we're grateful for the, 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 the and I, I guess suffering is the word that's used a lot in the book for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. He has to find meaning in his suffering every single day. And it's, yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's really important. I stress that what he's been through is something that I'm sure none of our listeners, if any, will ever experience that kind of, uh, hopefully no one ever will experience again, right? It's something that goes way beyond something I can even, my own even comprehension, mm -hmm. really. He, lo he lost absolutely everything. And yet he was able to find meaning in that suffering. And if he can do it in those situations, then we can do it. If we, if we, you know, bring it back to our context and what we're we're dealing with at the moment, which is only true for us in that moment, there should be a way we can reframe it as well. Something, something else that struck me when I was uh, re-listening to the book the other day, um, and it brings it back to an episode. Uh, I can't remember it was whether it was three, four, somewhere along there, but it was the time when you were talking about the um, the Tottenham fan, the famous Tottenham fan, the hope that kills us. He says it's the hope yeah, that. Yeah. That's what, what, yeah, was a while ago now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lee McQueen. Lee McQueen. Yeah, that's it. So what, the last word on Spurs that, podcast. That's it, yeah. So so what was interesting was, um, so he would talk about prisoners who um, were convinced that they were going to be released by Christmas or convinced that the war was going to be over or whatever. And then when the Christmas came and went and they weren't released, they suddenly died, right? Because they had given yeah. all that hope to that release date. And when... And they, they, you know, or they had a dream and, and they were going to be free of this camp by by Christmas or something. And then it would come true because they would be free of the camp and they would die is what he would say. Um, but it was like, because you have so much hope. And I, and I was thinking about this um, from a reverse angle. And I, I um, years ago, this is like now 15, must have been more than that, 18 years ago, I was in Devon. So not that far from where you are, my mate Ben's, uh, who lives up in uh, Biddeford. And we were going, I think it was around New Year, actually. I was staying with him for New Year's because they had this big party down in Biddeford in New Year's usually. And um, we were going for a run. This was back when I was running. And I was thinking about this the other day because I've just tried to start running again very, very gradually to do one of these high rocks events we were talking about yeah. the other day. But anyway, so we were going for a run and I, he was training for a marathon. So this must have been before I did my marathon. So this must have been around 2005 because he was doing the Boston Marathon. So he was already quite a runner and I wasn't. And we were running along the beach. And I was saying to him, oh, you know, his dad was going to come pick us up from somewhere. And he was like, oh, you know, um, he's going to come and pick us up. But it's not for like another, we've still got another six miles or something like that. And 
because I knew that I had six miles, suddenly my hope had gone because I was like, oh, you know, I've got so much further to go. And actually he, he was doing a mind game with me because the, his dad was only like maybe 400 meters away. And he went off and started sprinting, like running off, whereas I had slowed down. And it was like, it was the reverse of that hope. It was that like, there was no finish line. It's, it's what they do in SAS training, right? They yeah, you yeah, go absolutely. and do the, the yeah. and you don't know where the vans are going to be. Yeah. You think they're there and they're not. And they go, do it again, do it again. Until eventually you go, I'm, I've had enough. And what you don't yeah. realize is around the corner, the vans were there. And you if you you lost selection at that point. Um, I don't know if you read, I know you've read the first book, I can't what it's called now, uh, the David Goggins books. I've, I've, yeah, I've, I haven't quite finished the second book, but the second, I've read the first, uh, Never Give Up, is it? Um, uh, never can't Hurt. hurt. Can't, hurt can't, can't Hurt Me, that's right. And the second one's called something else, but I'm, which I'm reading at the minute. But the second book opens with a hope experiment where there's rats that they're put into a pool of water and it's seeing how long they swim until they give up. Yeah. And I think the average time in the book opens with this, it's in the first chapter. And it talks about, I think the average time was like, I don't know, let, let's say for argument's sake, it's not in front of me, an hour and a half, two hours, was roughly around that number. And then they would give up and they would drown. Then they did the same experiment again. But as they're about to give up, that time frame they tend to give up, some would come in and rescue them and then put them back in the water and rescue them again each time. They went, they revisited the rats like two weeks later or whatever it was in the study. And bear in mind, I'm probably butchering this study, but you'll get the premise. But by the end of it, when they tried it again, after the rats knew they had hoped that they would be saved, they were able to get the rats to swim for like 40 hours. And so they were able to do that the first time. It's just the hope made them give up and they drowned and they took that option. When they realized there was a chance of being saved, which is similar to the, the as you say, the soldiers, similar to how we feel when we're tired. I mean, it links to uh, uh, physiological things as well, that we run better when we're happy. Uh, if you're feeling about sad, there's loads of um, experiments about we are stronger when we have happy thoughts and weaker when we have negative ones. We are yeah. more powerful as uh, athletes when we're th- feeling positive and when we feel negative. And yet, actually, with the same body, the, our mind is so powerful that just what yeah. we're you know, smiling and running will make you more efficient and less tired than if you're miserable and running, which is madness, yeah. but it's well, true. You know, because your, your muscles will be less tense and therefore you're going to not seize up and you're going to have more freedom to to have a better uh, conversion of your energy, right? Because you're not going to have to overcome. But it stuff. links to strength as well. There are strength tests. There's an actual test you could do, I think, where you hold someone's hand down and ask them to think of happy thoughts and then you do the same thing again on a negative yeah. situation. They, they haven't got the same level of strength or the yeah. other way around. Oh, it's it's lot- kind of like applied kinesiology. I'm not sure. Yeah. Actually, that's another book that I, I want to talk about at one point. I need to reread it and I would love you to read it, but it's called Power Versus Force, but we'll leave that for another time. But I wanted to talk about uh, something that you just mentioned there, um, where I guess with the, the book, The Man's Search for Meaning, that there's a couple of things that I was thinking. So yes, there's that hope. And and so some of the people who survived the camp, you know, they were having the, the visions of the brighter days that were going to come after the war and everything else. But also I think... Um, you know, it was finding meaning in the suffering in the moment and also finding purpose in that moment. So like, you know, always being like clean, clean shaven. And, and um, I mean, they were talking about, you know, being clean shaven, making your cheeks a bit redder so you looked healthier and stuff. But like having um, like a purpose within the camp or having something, you know, responsibilities within the camp or to do something because otherwise you there were just the, the walking dead basically and then you, they were more yeah. likely to die and so it was like a, any any kind of slight um win because they're the old uh, you know ambition for a certain degree was to, to dehumanize them 
anything yeah. they could do that rehumanized them, whether it was in secret or not, gave them that power that they weren't, they hadn't won their you know, minds yet. It's always going to end. You don't, because that's the hardest thing is that, like, because you can effectively um, overcome most things when you feel like, and I say, like, uh, this too shall pass, right? Nothing lasts forever. So you, yeah. You, yeah. you're in a uncomfortable environment, you know, it's not going to last forever, right? Let's say you're, I mean, you're sitting next to, in between two people on a plane who are massively overweight and you're hunched in. Yes, it's really annoying and uncomfortable, but you know it's not going to be for more than, say, a few hours or something as opposed to a lifetime. Um, but there they didn't necessarily know, I guess, when it was going to end. So therefore they had to find those uh, those bits of hope or those bits of purpose within yeah. the process that they were doing, which, again, I think is something to do with, like, for me, um, when it comes to goals, I know this isn't about goals, but I've, I've kind of gone towards the idea of a process-driven goal rather than a an outcome-driven goal in my thinking. So an outcome-driven goal being, yeah, run that, complete that marathon. The process-driven goal being, you know, being able to wake up and go for that run each day and 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 having those benchmarks along the way and having those, not, not just milestones, but being passionate about the process rather than the the finish line because sure. most- well that's the same as the, uh, I know, i'm a big fan of uh impossible goals but you have to, to have those you've got to have no attachment to them because mm-hmm. they're in theory they're impossible but it allows you to think differently it changes the way that you do yeah. things the, the way what, that you uh, approach problems. About, right this idea of non-attachment right so and i, I haven't kind i've been trying to come up with a metaphor that works for people to understand this idea of non-attachment and the best i've come up with so far is um having a balloon holding on to a balloon is that you know the the balloon bit is the goal i guess it's there but it's it's you're not so attached to it it's like waving around a little bit it's going to change around i haven't come up with the the perfect metaphor for describing this idea of non-attachment because on on the one hand you're you're sort of attached but on the other hand you you know i I, I use it in a different context i use it with one of my colleagues at work this week literally and it was like look i've got i want you to the number you need to hit roughly is X. So we're going to times that by by 10. I'm going to handcuff you to, I'm going to imagine I've handcuffed you to the table right now. And if you don't get this number that I've asked you to hit in the next 12 months, you're never going to see your family again. You know, all these, the, your worst things would come true. What are the immediate things you would do to reach that what is an impossible target by anyone's standards? And he, the individual came up with like 25 ideas that he'd never come up with before. Now, there doesn't need an attachment to the goal. And he knew there was no attachment to it, but it, it immediately encouraged him to think, not, not straight away, actually, but immediately when he got into what it was all about, to think differently, think outside the box. And interestingly, and as I think Simon Sinek talks a lot about, you know, you can achieve, and it's not about the how, it's about the who. I think it's Simon Sinek who talks about, you know, bringing people in. The how will take care of itself, but who can help you achieve it? Suddenly, this individual in my business was talking about, well, I could rope in the marketing manager to could do this and the ops director could do this for me and I could reach out to this. And I was like, all brilliant ideas. So what, why aren't we doing these things now? What's stopping you then from doing these things? And sometimes it's permissions. There's a whole host of different things. It's a really good, a really good uh, exercise where if, in that instance, though, he knew from the outset there was no official attachment to that goal, but he was able to change the way he thought in a safe environment to, to, yeah, to think bigger. Zig Ziglar, the late great motivational speaker. I mean, he talks about, I think it's him or it's Brian Tracy, but it's not about the goal. It's about who you have to become to achieve that goal, to even be yeah. on that goal. And I say that when I I used to run these goal setting sessions, and I think I may even have it. I've got a chapter on goal setting in my book. And actually one of the um, 
one of the steps it's like an 11 step process but one of the steps is about you know who do you need to connect with 100 because the first question often when we get stuck in the how is i don't know how to do this well who's who's the first person you would call when you have that thought oh, i'm gonna phone my dad i'm gonna phone my, my friend and that, great that's you're already on a starting point now to, to achieving the how and we probably need another session uh, or, or podcast but it sounds my, my friend my friend you know who wants to start the podcast she's like i guess who do i call oh harry all right so then i was like okay there you I'll, go you're the phone a friend and I, well, and I put her in touch with you and you spoke to her about the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now she's, you know, she's, she's getting it. That's, that's no, it. No, don't, don't get so stuck in the in the procrastination side of it. it's all too yeah. much for me. But in, so I want to talk about in the book, which I thought was interesting, yeah. is, well, he doesn't talk about it, but my interpretation of it. So man's search for meaning arguably is all about, and he talks about his, his therapy, I should mention, he comes up with a, a method called logotherapy, which logotherapy. it's a Greek word. Yeah. It means so, yeah. It's a Greek word. Lo- so, uh, is it? Oh, yeah, I should yeah, it. Logos means meaning. Okay. Reason. So, man's search for meaning also effectively relating that to what is the meaning of life. And I, my interpretation is there isn't necessarily a meaning. There, there is no exact meaning you'll get. And I say that because he likens it really cleverly. Uh, I, I, something I wish you'd know, come up with myself, but it's his, where he likens it to a chess champion being asked, what's the best move in the world? And of course, it depends on the specific situation. And um, Victor Frankl says, hence, man should not ask what the meaning of life is, but rather he must recognize that it is he who is asked, he who is responsible for giving it meaning is in his hands. Um, I thought that was really powerful. And linking to that made me, for me, it led me down a path of talking about the way that we label things. So the first thing someone might think when they read this book is, concentration camp is really really bad and i don't deny that to be true and that's obviously a massive like huge thing that most people would agree with but in day-to-day life we label things all the time as either bad good frustrating sad and i said i had this conversation on the back of reading this book which i should add as well was sent to me by emma win one of our listeners who uh, was very very kindly posted to me after you mentioned it in one of the early episodes so thank you emma big shout out for you for sending it through because i've loved this book and it's inspired this entire episode I had a conversation with my daughter about um, a label that she had given. It was earlier this week. I won't say what the label is because it was, a, it was a confidential conversation. But the idea being, I'll change the label and use the word bad. I said, just imagine if instead of we now say so bad, if, if that label was suddenly cool, that in your school, every single person in your class suddenly wanted to feel bad. Like that was suddenly the coolest thing in the world to feel bad. It's what everyone wants. When you feel bad, it actually, that's, you might feel terrible. It might be hurting. You might feel like you've got COVID or flu, but you almost want it because to everyone else, it's now been labeled as it's cool to feel bad. The whole feeling then we have, the meaning of it to us is completely changed because although you feel like crap, because our, our the way that we're interpreting it now is it's cool to feel that way, it almost isn't bad anymore. And I, I don't know if that's the best example I've given. It was better, it's better in the in the word, that she, the thing that she was feeling. But often we have these labels and when we attach ourselves, and it was made me think about it when you talk about attachment to goals, when we attach ourselves to a label, we automatically allow ourselves to follow the feeling that we've attached to that label. I feel frustrated, therefore I am automatically this. What if feeling frustrated actually was always a route to growth? If I told you every time you felt frustrated, you would always 100% of the time grow from that experience. Again, our interpretation, our meaning of the word frustration would change. Absolutely, right? Frustra- I think it's Tony Robbins that often talks about like frustration and confusion precedes kind of 
clarity or kind of a light bulb moment, right? Yeah, right. If you know that, then, um, you know, I, I, it's great. I mean, like one of the um, uh, things that I remember hearing about when I was listening to sales training, and I think I've mentioned this before, but let, you know, you're selling widgets for a thousand, thousand bucks, right? And you have to knock on a hundred doors before you make a sale. Every person that turns you down is, you know, giving you 10 pounds effectively because you have to go to a hundred people, you, you know, each yeah. and get a thousand pounds at the end of it. And so, you 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 all have a different association to that rejection as it were it's not a rejection it's just one more out of the way to get you one step closer to where you need to go um and it's i mean this is i mean this is what i say to the, the children and i keep saying it on every podcast right nothing has any meaning except the meaning you give it just like the meaning of life i mean i've personally i think i've discovered the meaning of life for me but again that can also change and this is i think what victor frankel talks about in his book is that you know the purpose of, of your life doesn't have is not is not static right like at some point yeah. the purpose of your life might be to help that person survive the day in the concentration camp that without per- going too wayward i'll say the meaning of life is there is no meaning arguably right because it well, changes daily based on whatever you're experiencing yeah, in that no, moment time, you know, for me the meaning of life for me is to a experience it and then b to love and serve others they're the two meanings i have right one is just to experience it and the other is to love and serve others now that may change that will be different for different people um you know some part of me though the, the bit that wants to know wants to know right i want to know the secrets of the universe that's why i did physics and astrophysics right and i'm it always <laughs> all these uh alien stuff and you, I, you, you love a rabbit hole you love a rabbit hole I, I love a rabbit hole because i want to understand and also like that's what maybe why i might be attracted to plant medicines or meditation or things like that because i want to know what it is um and every time I do a what is, I realize it's whatever you want it to be. But, so this links to a quote in the book, which I labeled. I, lo- I love this. And I I'll, I'll put this into my coaching notes because I think it's really, it's silly simple. And you may have heard it, which one it is. It's a, when it can't be changed, we are challenged to change ourselves. Hmm. The idea being, as my interpretation of it being, that when we can't change an external situation, there's nothing that we can do about the externals. Yeah. Actually, we're offered the opportunity to grow beyond ourselves we can change our response to those external situations by changing our internal interpretation of it yeah. our internal meaning of it it's so powerful and we can often think we're hopeless uh, and it, you know frankel talks about suicide in the book it, you know which i again for those that may have had suicidal thoughts or tendencies or whatever he says something to 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 think about is if you're in that moment consider who else relies on you and what else needs to be achieved first because there's always something that comes. It links to the impossibility of replacing someone, number one, but also it links to the suicidal mindset that we are unique. There's something that distinguishes us beyond everybody else. What is it we need to achieve first in order to give meaning to our existence? Mm. And you know, it allows us, to, again, to create that meaning that we're looking for, the man's search for meaning. If we have meaning, we don't have those thoughts, but we've got to try and recalibrate and re what's the word reconnect with what that meaning is this is what i was talking to you about uh on the text the other day which i don't think you've started watching yet but um you're familiar with the i guess the blue zones dan butner's work um yes so for those listening that maybe are not familiar it the blue zones are certain regions of the planet where there are higher numbers of uh 
percentages of people who live to over 100. And there are a few like Ikaria I- in, in Greece, Sardinia in Italy, uh, Loma Linda, California, uh, Okinawa, Calif- uh, Japan, and a couple of other places. And um, But um, in Japan, they have this, uh, and they have something similar, I think it was in, in Costa Rica, but in Japan, they have this principle, which I, you, I think you've probably heard of, uh, Ikigai. I think, have you heard of it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have Ikigai. So Ikigai is, I guess, for those listening who aren't familiar, it's the intersection between uh, things that you're good at, things that you can get paid for, things that the world needs, and things that you enjoy. So, you know, you enjoy, you're good at them, you can get paid for them, and, uh, and the world needs. And that almost becomes like, so it's kind of like purpose, but it's it's a bit more than purpose. It's uh, But it is that reason being, and it's a big thing i think in uh, certain areas of japan anyway this idea of ikigai and i think it's it is this idea of purpose and and having a reason like a lot of these um like warren buffett string springs to mind he's like 90 60s that was still going strong yeah you could say he has lots of great amazing medical treatments which i'm sure he does um but i think he's just truly passionate and purposeful about what he is doing and this is why purpose forms a part of the beat model under activity PSPC is passion service uh purpose and connection and so when you've got a purpose you can have the energy of a five-year-old you can get up early and go to bed late um and this is why I think it's a lot of people are post-retirement within a few years may pass on because they don't have that purpose or you know, so that goes back to the quote you said at the start of the show by Nietzsche, which is he who has a why to live by can bear with almost any how. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really um, powerful. I, think also, I, I wanted to jump in um, when you were talking about uh, Viktor Frankl. And, oh, yeah. If, if you can't change it, you change yourself sort of thing. If you can't change. Yeah. Things. When it can't be changed, we are challenged to change ourselves. Yeah. When it, it can't that, be changed, that's the external way yeah. that we change, that we have to look internal. Well, that's how I interpret yeah. it anyway. This is what I was I was saying to the, the students the other day. I was saying, you know, because we can only control our attitude and actions, we can't control anything else. Like, so for example, if you're running late to work, you know, what can I do? And I think I used this example before. It's like, you know, you phone, phone ahead, you, you try a different route and everything. And once you can't change those external circumstances, you have to change, you know, how you feel about it. And and I think uh, Victor Frankl talks about it in his book, or maybe not in the book, but the copy I've got, I think I should lend you because there's a, there's about an hour of a prefix of of his book uh, because he originally meant to publish this essay. That's right. Anonymous. He does talk about it in the book I've got. So maybe okay, it's so maybe, maybe it's an exact same version of that. But I think he takes some of his principles, I mean, from Stoic philosophy because that idea of concentrate on what you can control, cope with what you, can. with what you can't. Yeah, films important. Um, or control what you can control, cope with what you can't concentrate on. Important is a fundamental Stoic philosophy, and these these things like Buddhism, Stoicism, logotherapy, they all intermix and all intertwine, and meditation and mindfulness is. What's it do? They always says there's nothing new in this world, right? But it's... I know they they, they uh, many years ago I wanted to write this book um, about talking about the intersection between spirituality and science because I felt. That as science gets more and more progressive, they start to discover more and more what mystics and yogis have been talking about for thousands of years. And then I worked out, I think it might be up there on the oath. Yeah, the Tower of Physics by a guy called uh, Fritz Jock Kakra or something. Um, and it was written in the 1970s, but he talks about string theory, like super string theory, which is um, a physics theory and mindfulness and meditation. 
And so he actually wrote that wrote that book already. Uh, but I was re because when I started discovering all this stuff, because my background obviously physics, astrophysics, yeah, sure, science, but also lots of yoga, meditation. I was like, there's so many overlap in here. A lot of people think that science can't sit with religion or spirituality, but I don't think that's true at all. And and as you discover things, you're like, oh yeah, so the observer impacts the experiment, right? And they talk about you know there is this all connected idea and we talk about that as quantum entanglement in physics but actually they call that yoga unity union that's what the whole thing means is this connectiveness or the force in star wars right whatever you want to call it um but yeah he wrote this book and uh i was like oh it's a hard book to read but it is a good book there you go maybe your version is a a simpler simpler version yeah (laughs) and also and we'll link it to frankel then because your experience in terms of what you studied what you've researched will still be incredibly different even though the premise of linking the two is the same will be very different to his and linking it back to man's search for meaning uh frankel talks about the how um, no matter what we've experienced what i've experienced what you've experienced and obviously they're they're worldly different in in a way that we're what us here today no one in the world has the power to take that that from us doesn't matter who you are and i think it was you that gave this isn't a fankle quote but in a previous episode and i wrote it down and i've got it on my notes here i think it, well, it was you because i was writing it down you said when you doubt your power you give power to your doubt and that kind of links to that as well so don't lose don't lose the idea that whenever we've experienced no one in the world can take that from us and if you start to doubt it that's that's where the problems can start start to arise. So that's that's the links back to the awareness piece of just being aware of how we're feeling in that moment and what you know can we change the meaning of it if we are suffering if we're really struggling, you know, I've, I've struggles in my life right now. There'll be struggles in lots of the listeners' lives right now. You know, whether it's my dad or whether it's work stresses or other things that we're going through in our lives. Right? It's if we're able to give meaning to it and understand that there's meaning to the suffering, and you you know then that it just makes everything a little bit easier. Um, can't give meaning to it like some interesting questions might be to ask yourself things like you know what's great about this you know um what's um you know what's you know i don't know how how can i get through this right what 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 are the steps i need to do to take myself through i mean asking those it's like google it is i mean you gave me those questions to give to my dad Right, which we did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fifty questions. And that was a while ago. I mean, I'm grateful I had the opportunity to go and see him today because his first diagnosis gave him three months. And that was over two years ago. So you're grateful for every single moment that he's that he's I going mean, through that suffering I mean, because he's he's still here, right? It's, I really it's, want you to watch um watch that uh, Live to 100 one, but I think it was in episode five or six, and he talks about this guy. So a Greek guy grew up on Ikaria, which is one of the blue zones, but he left in the, when he was 20 or something to go to America, follow the American dream buy a car, all of this. And he worked there. He was 65, 66 years old. And he he went to all these specialists because he wasn't feeling well. And he went to all these different doctors that all gave him the same prognosis. I think he had was it lung cancer or something. He had some sort of cancer, was given six months to let, live. So he said, right, you know what? I don't want to die in America. I want to go back to your career and, and be buried there. And so he goes back to your career to, to be buried. And he plants this uh, vine leaf or vineyard and stuff. Um, and he said, oh, my, my wife will be able to see it grow. And then the Dan Butner goes and interviews him now at 103 years old, right? He has outlived. Like, all these doctors said he would have six months. Yeah. And now 35 years later or whatever it is. Amazing. He was 103 in this, in this, in this interview. I bet he's grateful for every day. 
Absolutely. You know, um, so yeah, what, what do doctors know, right? My my brother-in-law's mom was given six months uh, a couple of years ago as well, and she's she's still around, and she's just met her uh, her new granddaughter. A lot of it's about hope. I'll put it out there. You know, my my, my dad's got his fiftieth wedding anniversary to look forward to in January, so he ain't, he ain't going before then in my book. You know, he's got loads of things to look forward to. He's got a, a project going on in France. There's loads of things. It's about having that hope. We talked about the, the rats earlier, right? You can stop swimming or keep going, and um. Let's keep going. Loads, loads of excitement, loads of experiences, loads of meaning still to be discovered. Um, and I think that's that's, that's exciting. Um, it's a great story with that. With that. Yeah, I, I like that. There's a book called Cured, which I've, I've sent to my mum. You might know it as well, about loads of life life stories about people that have beaten their diagnosis and and, and defied science, essentially, with the you know with, with the prognosis well, they've had. I don't know if it's defying science or just defying one or two doctors' opinions. Well, quite possibly. <laughs> I think I told you. Well, I think I've told you my grandma's story, right? I'll, I'll probably we'll finish with this. This okay. is a true, absolutely true story, and probably a good way to close the show. Um, talking about our search for meaning, we often we have our meaning dictated to us by experts. Often they use the word you know, doctors a moment ago, and of course they're very skilled at what they do. The reality is, we know we don't know everything in this world, and, and we're constantly defying science and logic every single day. So my grandma, who sadly is no longer with us, but years ago was diagnosed with a a, a terminal brain tumor, and her, my dad and his and her other children uh, took her on holiday. I think it was to Greece, actually, fair enough. I think it was uh, maybe it was Cyprus they went to, something like that. Anyway, she she was a religious woman, which for her this gave her a lot of meaning, and, and whether you are or not doesn't really matter. But when she was out there with a brain tumor that was due to terminally take her life, with all the doctors' views, she was violently sick, and she said the sick she had was completely black in color. Not something she'd ever seen before. Mm. Um, she was really ill, and they took her back early. I think they took her back early because she was so sick and so ill. Um, but when she net went back for her scans, the brain tumor had completely gone. No trace of it. She lived another 20, 25 years after this brain tumor. Um, and she believes that you know, spiritually um, that was God's way of you know getting rid of whatever it was in her mind. But she was sick. And whether there's any connection between the sick and the tumor, I don't know. The color, I don't know. No, who knows? But she defies science. There was literally no, no trace of it back on the scans when she went back and she she Crazy. lived on with, with no brain I'm, I'm not surprised, but it's always nice to hear kind of first, second hand. First hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my grandma. So um, sadly, she's not with us anymore. But um, yeah, it uh, gives me little chills down my spine when I hear things like that with someone you actually know. It's um, it's fine. Yeah, that is great. That's good really, um Cool. All right, well, that's probably a good place to leave it then. And um well, I recommend the book. Look, and for those who aren't readers, this is a, not a big book. I mean, it's literally the, the, the well. story. Is, yeah, get the audio version. The story itself actually is only 100 pages. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the last, how many pages are now? 50, 58 pages are all about logotherapy. It's called Logotherapy in a Nutshell, which talks about the meaning of life and, and the man's search meaning post. But the actual story of what he went through and the hardship is 100 pages. You can read it in a, you know, a few hours. So if you haven't read it, 60 million copies sold for a reason. Thank you, Emma, for sending me my copy. Thank you, Harry, for introducing the book to me in the first place on this first episode of this show that we ever recorded. Um, fantastic book. And will will live with me. Uh, the learnings from it will live with me forever, I think. Um, so I highly recommend it. Yeah, me too. Cool. All right. Well, it's uh, nice to chat. I hope you have a good rest of your evening. Uh, and everybody. too, buddy. And that's our first book review. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, have we not reviewed any other ones? I don't think so. I don't know if that's a full review, but we both, uh, I think we're leaving on the gadgets. idea that we, we both gadgets. Yeah, we do gadgets. That was it. But um, yeah, lots of books, but um, Power versus Force would be a good one to for, to read. That's all about the kinesiology stuff. All right, send me the link. All right, buddy. Listen, good to see you. I will catch you next week, sir. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for tuning in to the Mindful Past podcast with Nick Day and Harry Kalimnos. We hope you found our discussions insightful and hopefully you've gained some valuable takeaways to support you on your own journey. Please leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform and share an episode that resonates with you with a friend or family member who may also find it valuable. Please also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to ensure you never miss a future episode. And in the meantime, we'll continue exploring mindful path topics to provide you with more insights and more ideas to support you on your personal growth journey. Thank you for your support and look out for the next episode of the Mindful Paths podcast dropping soon.